0: our Heavenly Father, on this beautiful, sunny winter morning, we want to turn to Thee in thanksgiving, acknowledging that Thou art indeed the God who is running everything by the word of Thy power. Nothing happens outside of Thy notice, and nothing happens without Thy permission. It's indeed a blessing to think that even though humanity is in turmoil, even though... The future is very uncertain. We have a God who is in complete control, one who we can turn to at any time and find solace, comfort, and help. Heavenly Father, we want to take this opportunity now to lift up in prayer unto thee all those that are going through uh, difficult situations. We know there are many, many needs, and there are those with a uh, with Terminal illness, those with chronic illness, those who have uh, hardships, uh, perhaps of a financial nature, or or issues of mental health, and there are many, many needs. Heavenly Father, ultimately, we know that Thou art the source of of every need; that Thou can supply everything that we require. But Thou dost use the hands and feet of Jesus Christ here on this earth which is the church. Help us to be ready at a moment's notice to bend our knees in prayer or to uh, reach out and help to help those that are in need. Press upon our minds and hearts the many needs that are around us and help us to be a people characterized by prayer that we will turn to thee first and often for these things. Be with us now as we look together into thy word and we pray these things in the name thy Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I really didn't have uh, a clear idea of what the Lord would want me to speak on this morning, but just as I was getting in my car this morning on the way here, uh, the Lord put a scripture on my heart, and it's found in the book of Psalms. If you'll open with me to Psalms the 48th song that we know, our chorus that we sing. Psalm 48, a song and psalm for the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled, they passed by together, they saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them upon them there and pain, as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so have we seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. Salem. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk around Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider the palaces that ye may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. I've read the entire psalm. I've had a number of thoughts running through my head the last little while, and it's interesting to always see how the Lord provides. Uh, I've, I've stopped worrying about what I'm going to preach about, and if nothing comes, I just trust that the Lord will open a word to us, and he will feed us from the same. He takes care of his sheep. He leads them by still waters into the green pastures. So I have no fear that the Lord will not provide for the needs of those who are sincere, who are sincerely seeking him or looking to follow the shepherd. And so I don't worry too much about what I'm going to preach about in the sense of the topic or the content even. It's much more important that I be ready to be used in this way and get out of the way so that the Lord can speak. Because I know the words are his, not mine. Last Wednesday, we began our series on the book of Revelation. And we looked at the seven churches in Asia Minor that are mentioned. If you recall the book, it begins with the revelation that John had on the Isle of Patmos. He was there on the the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an old man already by that time, in his 80s. And the Lord revealed a fresh vision to him of what was going to come to pass. Revelation means a revealing. The name in Latin, as was was touched on on Wednesdays, is apocalypse, which now means something terrible, but the word actually just means the same thing as it does in English, revelation, a, a pulling back of the curtain to see. And of course, once we know the end, it isn't so scary. the Lord goes on to give John a message that is to be relayed to the angels of each of the churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches that are listed. And you can read about the characteristics of each one. As I've been thinking about that, because of course then your thought goes, well what about the message for the church of Toronto? And as I was thinking about that, I thought, no, no, I've got it wrong. We've done something with the word Church that the Lord never intended. Church for us, I think, not for us, Church has come to mean the building and the idea of the location and of course that's not what the Lord intended. The the word in the Greek means the assembly and growing up with, uh, with German parents, German grandparents, really, my father of course is German, we used certain words that I didn't think about much at the time, but as time has gone by, I've thought about them a lot more. They never referred to, in in the German language, they never referred to the members of the church as members of the church. They were called die Gemeinde, the, the fellowship, the assembly, right, it's the same word. Even the name given to the building was never the German word for church. The German word for church is Kirche, which is the, the building. Kirche, to my grandparents, meant like the, the, the cathedral or the, the big church, the, the um, impressive uh, edifice. Uh, the word that they use, used was um, the Versammlungshaus, And it literally means the gathering house the place where the fellowship, the assembly, would gather together. It was the gathering house. And even the people in the, in the town knew it by that name. I have an old map of uh, the town that my grandmother mother, grandmother was from, called Cherneke. And in there, the Nazarene for someone's Houses is noted. It was known as the gathering house of the Nazarenes. So when you think about this message, It's not going to a a structure, an organization, a building. It's going to people, but it's, it's further than that. Because, of course, what is the church? What is the assembly? It's the place where the Lord is. Jesus himself said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. It's the place that the Lord is. Now. The believer is also the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is God. So the smallest unit is the believer, and where the believers are gathered together, then, God, then Christ is there in a special way. If you think about uh, lamps, you know, like, a, like, a, like a, a lantern, there's a flame in there, that's the flame of God, the fire of God, that burns inside that lantern, that's the believer. But when those lanterns are gathered together, the light dramatically increases. It's, it's uh, It becomes a recognizable um, manifestation of the light of God, and so there's a special blessing there. So if we think about it in this way, the question becomes, what is God's message to me and to the group of believers that I associate with? And of course, the 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 cutting remarks that the Lord made to some of those churches. I can't apply it to the church. Oh, the church is this way. And talk about the church as if it's some objective outside thing. I am part of the church. I make up that church. I'm one of the links in that church. I can't disassociate myself from that group. Why do I say that? Because God never intended for Christians to be free range. Individuals scattered, scattered here and there. I think our idea of personal rights and personal freedoms has gotten in the way of what God intended uh, for the church. We like to think of things in terms of ourselves. Just had a conversation this morning. We're talking about uh, our identity and how how we, we look at things. And, and our, our viewpoint is by necessity singular, right? We have only one viewpoint. I can't know what life is like through uh, each of you. I can imagine if you tell me things, but I do everything from my one viewpoint. And we, we, we come to the conclusion that that's the only viewpoint that matters. But God has the ultimate viewpoint of everything. That's why He's the source of truth. He knows everything, He sees everything, and He understands everything correctly. And in His infinite wisdom and understanding, He decreed that His children would be gathered together in assemblies. Pandemic or no pandemic. God never intended for the believer to walk alone. The disciple, Peter, said, we've left so many things, what shall we have? And he says, look, you're going to have not only rewards in heaven, but in this life already, houses, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters with persecutions. And that's the way it is, is to be a network. I think we have lost the vision of what the Lord intended for the church, the fellowship, the kingdom of God, what that was to look like. And as we've isolated ourselves, maybe not physically, but mentally, we've disconnected ourselves from this idea of this fellowship, we've... we're in in danger of of error and definitely of, of not living up to what the Lord intended for His church. So I'd like to take the time this morning to look through this psalm, and to do exactly what the psalmist is telling us to do, to walk around Zion, go round about her, to tell the towers thereof, to mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that may tell it to the generation following. Mount Zion was the place that God had chosen to dwell. It was Jerusalem, the city of David, the place, Mount Moriah, where Abraham was to offer his son Isaac and the Lord intervened. It was the place that God specifically selected to build his temple there. It was where God dwelt, which I've already said is what God's intention for the church is. The church be the place where God would dwell. It's interesting to see the reaction of those who considered this. First of all, in order to have a proper conception of what the church is, you must, need, you must have a proper conception of who God is. Without understanding God right, you will go completely off track. History is full of examples of, of people that have misunderstood God. So we need to have a right conception of God. Theology is supposed to be that. To be the study of God. Our textbook is scripture, but not just scripture. The world in which we find ourselves also will tell us about the greatness of our God. I was talking with my oldest boy, talking about distances, and he was saying about how, how far light travels in a second and how far, how big a light here is. I mean, these are things that our, our minds can't even wrap around. Like, we just can't wrap our heads around it. We, we accept it, but we don't really understand it. I mean, that doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't compute the, the scale that God has made. I think it was Voltaire, or not Voltaire, it was uh, maybe Blaise Pascal who said he believed, and it was just a thought, when he considered how huge, massive, uh, enormous the universe is, and then when he looked under a microscope and he saw how, how small things were, he thought that perhaps God has made man halfway in between the largest thing in the universe and the smallest thing in the universe. It's an astounding thought when you think about that, that God has placed us at the midpoint. I don't know for sure. That was just a, an idea he had, he had, but I like it. It gives me a sense of how great everything is and how much God has poured to me. That he looked to me. That he sent his son for me. But once he sent his son for me, he expects me to do so much more than just worry about myself. The psalmist begins here with a, with a, a bird's eye view as you, if you were... Uh, if you will, of, of Mount Zion, of the city of Jerusalem. That was beautiful. It was beautiful for situation, for where it has been placed. Think about that for a moment. Do you realize that the churches in this world have been placed by God if they have begun in Him? They're there for a reason. They're there to serve as a light. To be noticed And like I said, that doesn't necessarily mean the building. In fact, it doesn't really mean the building. The building's only the gathering place, the roof over our heads to keep the weather out when we would gather together. So where the believers are gathered together, we ought to be a light to the world. We we ought to provoke notice. I've often thought, you know, when we have a big event here, we're just about a little bit past a year from the midwinter scene last year when this church was full. I wonder what people think when they see so many people gathered at a recognizable church. Does it provoke them? What brings people out on a Sunday when they could be other places? What's the big attraction? We need to be ambassadors for that. The joy of the whole earth. Beautiful for a situation, but the joy of the whole earth. How do we know that the church of God is from God. Because it does what God does. How do we know what God does? Because Christ was here and we saw what he did. When the church, through missionary societies, sends workers and evangelists into Africa, where they build hospitals, where they bring education, we mentioned this morning, Papua New Guinea, to tribes of headhunters where they ate each other in time past, the gospel light came. And now there is humanitarian work. There's an effort to, to uh, uh, not only uh, enrich the, the souls, but the minds and the lives of those that are there. To bring healing where there's disease. They took women from living with the pigs the way that it was before, to now being the equal of the man and the queen in his own does that. That's the church of God. That's what happens when God comes. I quoted it before from this pulpit about the atheist who went back to Africa after having grown up there as a child, left and come back 20 years later. And he says, my conclusion is shocking, even to me. He said, I have concluded that what Africa really needs, this is an atheist mind you, saying this, or an agnostic at least, what Africa really needs is the gospel. Not NGOs, not non-governmental organizations that are going to come with aid and with vaccines and with birth control. That's not what Africa needs. Africa needs the gospel. Because where there is no gospel, there's an unholy fusion um, of the witch doctor, the cell phone, and Nike. Those are his words, not mine. the joy of the whole earth. Who wouldn't want this thing? Who wouldn't want to see the lives of those people enriched, To be brought up from, from a scratching, pitiful existence where hundreds of thousands, millions every year die of starvation and disease to a better life? Only one who is ruled by evil would hate. The city of the great king, the one who rules all. No earthly leader needs to be in charge of missionary societies or churches. The true followers of the kingdom of God answer to the king. He directs them. This is why the spread of the church is so effective. Ways that are outside of the channels of human power. But those in human power often want to cling to that power and to have power over other people, and so they perceive this coming kingdom as a threat to their kingdom. But this kingdom of God is not an oppressive kingdom. Verse 3 says God is known in her palaces for a refuge, for one who protects protects the innocent, protects the unprivileged, protects the downtrodden. They are the ones that often respond first and best to the gospel. They have the least to lose and recognize the refuge that they find in God. For lo, the kings were assembled together, they passed by together, they saw it and so they marveled, they were troubled and hastened away. Fear took hold upon them, they are in pain as of a woman in travail. You want to understand these verses? Read in the history of the world those that tried to persecute the church and their thoughts about them. They hated these people of God, but they also feared them. They feared them because their best efforts were were ineffective against this assembly of believers. earthly powers have no where, where God wants to intervene in a powerful way, no, no earthly power will, will stand against that. We, we see that even with this pandemic. An invisible virus, I, I just read a, a week or so ago, that all of the coronavirus, the, the, the particles of the virus, if you could fit it inside something, it would fit in a soda can, a little pop can. That would basically contain all of the particles of the virus that are in this entire world. Something so small. And yet it's wrought havoc with the systems of this world. That's the power of God. One little change in the DNA of a virus that jumps from animal to human and suddenly we have a pandemic. What army is going to stand against that? As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of Hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. Where God chooses to dwell, no man will be able to erase it. He has decreed it. Worldly powers have tried to wipe out the church of God, to extinguish the light of the believer have been entirely unsuccessful. In fact, their efforts only fanned the spread of the flames of the gospel. That's how powerful God is. So when we consider this, when we consider the beauty of what God intends the church, the place where He is to be, we need to stop and we need to think about it. It says in verse 9, We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. The most effective, the best thing, the best remedy for our selfishness and for our, our, our all of the self-sins, self-absorption, self pity self-promotion, whatever you want to call it, is to be around other people that the Lord is working through as well. And it's such an encouragement to me when I see, in spite of what someone is going through, how they still can have the joy of the Lord because I look at my own problems and I think, what are they compared to that? How is it that this person can be joyful in what they're going through and I have so much trouble with a little problem? I see how beautiful... The city of God is that he's building. And I consider that where I thought maybe I was a prominent part of that, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm just a little stone to the base. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. So what is the name of God? You can read it in the Old Testament, he declared it to Moses, who he was, a merciful God, a just God, a loving God, the truth, the way, the life. He uses all of those words. He is, if I was to sum it all up, just simply say, he is the source. I heard someone once say that the center of God is everywhere and his circumference is nowhere. And you have to be, I guess, a little bit of a mathematician maybe to untangle that one in your mind. But when you think about that, that God is so great, that He's the source of all things, that His center, His exact center is everywhere, and there is no edge to Him. He's that big. Now, how big are your problems? How big are the difficulties you find yourselves in? How big is your ego and your self-importance compared to a God so great? And what excuse do you have for not accepting the blood of His Son? A God that great that would bring Himself down to your level to walk among you, to show you what He intended, and then ultimately to die for you? What excuse will you offer for not accepting that blood that was shed for you? That's an awful thought, an awful thought. The psalmist says, magnify the Lord with me, or with us. There's two ways to think about magnification. One, it's like with a magnifying glass or a microscope. We take small things and we make them bigger. That's not the kind of magnification that the psalmist was talking about. There's another kind of magnification. You look through a telescope, To take incredibly big things and make them appear a little closer to how big they really are because of the distance. That's the kind of magnification we're talking about with God. When we magnify God, we try to properly give Him His his, his greatness that's due His name. We can't really. It's like trying to take a tiny star from the distance and, and, and bring it larger so that we can look at it and appreciate it, but even that is No comparison to the star's actual size. So it is with God. To properly understand and think about God is... I I heard this saying once. I think it's true. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. I'm still cheering on that one. What I think about God is the most important thing about me. Of course, because that will drive everything I do.
1: If I really believe God is so great.
0: What secret sin would I allow myself that he wouldn't see? Of course he sees it. What evil uh, thought would I harbor in my heart If I know that God is so great that he knows my heart, it totally disarms me. One of the things I think is a good exercise for all of us, because we do so little of it, is meditation. Not the mindless repeating of a phrase. That's ridiculous. But a quiet thinking about God. This has been lost in today's insanely fast-paced world. We no longer sit and think about God and how great he is. Former generations did this, I think. There's a story I heard once of a believer plowing the field that goes in Yugoslavia. And as he was plowing, wore a wide straw-brimmed hat, and you could watch him plow the furrows with his animals, turn, plow back, and every so often he would simply take his hat off, hang it around the thread, the the string off off his back. And he'd go like that for a while and then he'd put his hat back on. Then a little while later, he'd take it off again. He was praying. In the middle of what he was doing, plowing that field, he was having thoughts of God. Because we don't think about how great God is, I think we don't properly appreciate how beautiful God's church is. And so we think that church is something we can either take or leave. There's a saying, familiarity breeds contempt. That means when you become familiar with something, when you're so used to it, you don't think it's special anymore. I have a little bit of that when, uh, was it last year? No, I guess it was two years ago now, we had some visitors from Phoenix, Arizona. A very dry place. We took them to Niagara Falls. It was the springtime. Millions of gallons of water, liters of water rushing over that edge. Green grass, green trees. Brother Dan Pantalek was with us. It was their family, Dan and Marie, their children. And he kept saying, wow, I can't believe how green everything is. You take it for granted. Yeah, it's springtime. Beautiful, isn't it? Look at the water. Impressive, isn't it? Until you don't have it. Perhaps our familiarity with the idea of church has made us immune to the beauty of it. And we've forgotten what the Lord is actually doing with the church. We've distanced ourselves from it. We've allowed little petty things to get in the way of appreciating that beauty. It's like dismissing a city because you see some litter on the sidewalk. Saying, oh, this is a filthy place. Clean up the litter. So you can properly appreciate the beauty." Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. The daughters of Judah are often symbolically used throughout the Old Testament, often rejoicing. When we think about the church, when we think about the assembly, do we rejoice? Are we thankful? Do we have uh, unprovoked thoughts of God during the week when we're going about our, our business? thought of a little parable allegory from the Old Testament. I'm sure you all remember the story of Noah on that great ship. And if you remember, he sent out two birds. He sent out a raven and he sent out a dove. The raven he sent out, it flew off and it never came back. The answer, I think, was probably... Somewhat obvious. With that many dead things floating in the water. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet for him. He delighted to light on those filthy carcasses. But when Noah released the dove, it says she found no place to put her feet. She returned to the ark. Why is this an allegory? I think this is an allegory for our thoughts. What do your thoughts do when released? When when they're unconstrained? Do they fly to the filthy things? To the things that are dirty, polluted, floating in the waters of this world? Or do they find no home there, and so they return to the earth? your thoughts return to the God that made you? What do they do when they're unconstrained? I often have to, I've been trying to do this as an exercise for myself. That when I'm not thinking about anything to stop myself and say, what what am I thinking about here? Is this something about God? I believe it was Paul that wrote, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things. Our mind needs to be trained this way. Naturally, we're the raven, but we've been made into the dove. Rejoice in the things of God. Walk about Zion, go round about her, tell the towers thereof, count them. Look at the things that God has done through the church. Read the writings of the great men of God. Of those that have suffered for the faith, not only from our own group, but others also. Read through Great Gates of Splendor Jim Elliott and his story, the story of his life. Read the Martyr's Mirror if you can stomach it and see how others stood for Christ in spite of intense persecution. Read about how the persecuted church today is suffering with joy. Talk about Zion. Don't consider things only from your own viewpoint. Look also to the the things of others, Scripture tells us. Consider others and the things that they're going through. Mark ye well her bulwarks, a bulwark is like a retaining wall, I think, or a footing, a structure. Those are important. Consider the foundational doctrines, the teachings of the Lord and His apostles. Consider the things that you believe, so you won't be shaken. There is no substitute for a proper foundation when shaking comes. When the shaking comes, the foundation is going to be. Re- whether it's a good one or not, you read the account of the wise and the foolish man. You can have the song in Sunday school. And what happened when the storms beat against that house and it didn't have a proper foundation because it would be built on sand? Consider what you believe. Stretch your mind. Don't go running around on feelings. Consider the boards, the things that support. I heard an account once of an older uh, member an older man, older follower of the Lord, and he said, you know, sometimes I'll hear something that really kind of shakes me, shakes my faith, puts doubts in my mind. And he said, it's at those times that I go dive down to the foundation, to examine again the foundation of what I believed. And he said, it never ceases that I come up rejoicing. Have you gone back to that foundation? Or have you allowed the little things On the surface, to interrupt you, to disturb you, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. Why is it that so many children of believers leave the church? Say that if they don't, if they don't, some measure of that responsibility I think will fall on me. Because I know that I haven't always done these things that I'm preaching about this morning. I have not always rejoiced. I have not always been glad and joyful. I have not always considered the things of the Lord. Too often, I run on my own feelings and emotions. I get down. I get angry more often than I care to admit. My children often see that side of me. But I still need to tell it to the generations following. You see, God is the constant. Churches Assemblies of Believers, I was thinking about this morning as I was driving in, they're kind of like ships on the sea. A group of people rescued from the waters in a boat now, with the job of rescuing others. The maintenance of that ship is important. If people start drilling holes through the side of the ship, if people start reaching over the edges and dabbling in the water, can very well capsize. The ship can go down. But God is still forever and ever. It doesn't change. He doesn't change. It's as if we were, you know, journeying for a far shore and you know, in the days of sailing vessels you had to take care which way the wind was blowing, set the sails properly to catch the wind. Uh, um, I know next to nothing about sailing other than what I've read in the books. But I can appreciate the beauty of a sailing ship under full sail, and especially with a good crew running it, where they all know what to do and, and how to grab the most out of the wind and to see it just fly over the waters. Uh, years ago, My wife and I, and Adam, he was one at the time, we went out to California, we went to San Francisco. And there was a point there where we were overlooking the bay. And you can see the ships in there. It's a deep bay, Alcatraz in the middle. And one of the things that we saw there was uh, a, a racing yacht. It was owned by the Oracle Corporation. And if you know what their boats look like, I guess the guy that's in charge of that company has a thing for sailing, because... These are carbon fiber and they're huge. I mean, I don't know how tall that mast is. 60, 70 feet maybe, I don't know, huge. And the speed, with just the wind, the speed that that boat was traveling, it was outstripping the powerboats that were around. You can just see the the weight curling off that hull. They have these special outrigger, like a a double holder, I think, or something like that. And and you can see that thing just occasionally lift out of the water and, and just flying. Must have been a real thrill to be on that on that ship traveling at that rate of speed, harnessing that wind. But what happens if the sails are let down? But what happens if the man at the rudder isn't paying attention? It doesn't take long and can capsize. So there are warnings, and I'd like to make full circle perhaps and come back. What I began talking about with the churches of Revelation, there are warnings that need to go to the. It, was, it says the angel, and that word can be messenger as well, it could also mean the elder of the church there, to take heed, to be careful how he sets the course, what he does about the things on on, on the on the ship, as it were. I feel like I mixed together a lot of metaphors, and hopefully. You could retain some of what I've said. But I think we need to consider first how great our God is, and second, how beautiful His church is, and third, what we're doing about it. It's going to matter for the generations following. May the Lord add whatever was lacking, what was said. Amen. As a concluding thought, I'd just like to point back to the fourth verse that we sang together. though we ride the surging billows on the raging stormy sea, yet we conquer, well the Savior is on board from harm we're free and obedient and obedient to his word the storm must be when the Savior's on board what happens when he's not on board? message to the churches in Revelation he said behold I stand at the door and knock and whosoever opens I will come into him and sup with him I don't believe that verse is talking about salvation I don't believe that's talking about the individual. Why? Because he's writing it to the church. Jesus Christ had been locked out of the church. This is why it's important, first, that the believer would be the temple of the, of, of the living God. But then, that together that we would not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Because together, when, when, when spirit filled believers are assembled together, Christ himself is in the midst in a very special way. I don't totally understand that, so don't look to me for an explanation of what exactly that means. But it says, I will come in and sup with them, he will be the guest of honor. He will direct the church. He will build the church. In today's world, there's a very anti-authoritarian bent. There's a lot of talk about oppression and hierarchies and all this kind of stuff. We're in danger of letting that kind of thinking work its way into the church as well. And to think of the church as some kind of an oppressive body, no, no. No, it's the body of Christ, where He is the center, and then everything that is true about Mount Zion that we read together will also be true of us, regardless of where we gather. We will indeed become a spectacle again to the world, a thing of beauty. A place that will cause rejoicing to those that know and love and see the truth. May the Lord act whenever it was lacking. This concludes our service.